Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word, or you can use one of the Bibles there in the pew in front of you, and turn this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. JT surprised me there. I was expecting another song. I wasn't ready. I'll get there. So let's just get it out of the way. The big word for the morning. I know you've come to expect it. And I promise that it's never in an effort to impress. But sometimes just the the big word is the one that fits. When it comes to God's presence, we must be aware of God's holiness. And we always see in God's holiness a juxtaposition. A juxtaposition in God's holiness. Now, I know that doesn't impress any of you. Um, probably getting some eye rolls. The only person who's happy that I said that word is Mrs. Ball. And she's not here, I don't think. I think I guess they're traveling. So somebody please make sure to tell her that I use this term so I get extra credit in her class. What do I mean by juxtaposition? Well, a juxtaposition is when two concepts or objects are placed in close proximity to each other thus creating meaning, a deeper meaning, or highlighting a deeper meaning. And oftentimes, those will be used in an oxymoronic way, another wonderful word that we get from grammar, where it's two things that seem to contradict one another or don't seem to fit together, but when we use them together, it actually highlights the deeper meaning that we need to understand when trying to understand a concept or an object or something in front of us. And we see such a juxtaposition in the holiness of God. When we see the holiness of God and when we seek to understand the holiness of God, we are confronted by two things. And these things are highlighted all throughout the scripture and often together we are confronted with the the terror of God's holiness. But we're also confronted with the goodness and the beauty of God's holiness. And I love how the service so far has really set us up to understand that Christmas time is one of those times where we are most profoundly aware of this juxtaposition of God's holiness. What is the big deal about Christmas? It is wrapped up in this one beautiful term, one beautiful name of God, my favorite name for God, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us so that we might dwell eternally with him. And we see this juxtaposition of God's holiness all through the Christmas story. And one of the ways that jumps out at me is when we see the, uh, the, the host of angels appear to the shepherds there in the field. And they're making this pronouncement that the king has arrived. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards those who find favor with God. And in that statement, we are confronted with this juxtaposition, glory to God in the highest, that his holiness strikes terror, it strikes fear in the hearts of those shepherds in that field that night. But also the truth is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And what happens? The shepherds cower away from the angels who are reflecting the holiness and the glory of God. But then they are drawn to go and seek out the very presence of God as he's born in a manger that morning. We see this juxtaposition. So this is the truth. God is holy and his presence is terrible. God is holy. His presence is wonderful. God is holy and his presence is deadly. But God is holy and his presence is life. God is holy. His presence is to be feared. God is holy. His presence is to be sought. Here's the big idea this morning for this passage in 2 Samuel 6. That God intends for his people to dwell in his presence. But get this. His people can only do this in right relationship with him. This is the juxtaposition of God's holiness this morning. I'm not going to take the time to read the entire passage before we begin to walk through it. I'll just read it in bits as we do that. Let's pray together and then we'll begin that task. So, God, we give you praise this morning. 
And God, as we enter into this place, as we assembled as your gathered body this morning, what a gift it is to be able to come into your presence and worship you. God, I pray that that would never become mundane to us. That God, this morning we come into your presence and you are holy. But we celebrate the reason why we can come into your presence this morning because of the accomplished work of Christ. And so God, I pray that you would raise our awareness this morning of just who you are. God, we see this morning in this passage that David and the nation of Israel needed a reminder. And so indeed do we often need a reminder of just who you are. A reminder of your holiness. So God, remind us of that this morning. And God, help us to rest in Christ. In all of all that you have done for us to reconcile us to yourself so that we can be restored to your presence. And we look forward to the day, as we've already read through this morning, the day we will be restored fully into your presence. So God, help us to look forward and hope today too. All because of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. So God, help us to be reminded of these key truths about who you are this morning. And we thank you for your spirit who helps us in that task. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, let's get the setting of the chapter here, beginning in verses 1 and 2, if you'll read along with me there. 2 Samuel 6, it says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah. You will also know this place as it's referred to as Kiriath-Jerim, as we have seen in other places. Um, All the people who were with him there to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So we see here that the ark has been... Here in this place called Kiriath-Jerim, it's been outside outside of Israel for 70 years. If you look back, it should point us back to the beginning of our study in 1 Samuel to chapter 4, where the statement is made that the glory of God has departed. That's when the ark was taken out of the midst of the people in Israel. And the statement is made that the glory of God has departed because with the ark goes the presence of God. David gathers his men as if preparing for a military campaign. To David, this is a big deal. This opportunity to restore the ark back into the center of life in Israel. It's a big deal to him. So he gathers these 30,000 men to go as if he's going on a military campaign. It's a big deal to David. But notice an absence that's here. In prior situations, when David has gathered his mighty men for battle, he has also inquired of the Lord concerning what he is about to go and do. And here we see that there's an absence of that. There's nothing that tells us here that David inquires of the Lord. And I think that's going to be important as we move forward and see David's actions here. Secondly, notice the description of the ark. It's almost as if the writer of 2 Samuel is just piling up all of these accolades to help us understand exactly what the nature of this Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of God it's referred to, and that's going to be repeated seven times in this chapter, the Ark of God. Also, it says that it is called by the name, and there is the, is the idea of the very name of the Lord of hosts. And then it's said to... Uh, be the place where God sits enthroned on the cherubim. Commentator Davis points these three things out that we ought to take from understanding what the ark is. Number one, we see here rulership. That God sits enthroned as the king of his people upon the cherubim of the ark. It's important for us to understand the ark is not God. The ark is not the presence of God, but it is representative of the presence of God. It is as if it is God's throne. So it indicates his rulership, his supreme rulership. Secondly, it should highlight for us reconciliation, that it's there upon the mercy seat. that The blood is sprinkled so that the people's sins can be atoned for, so that they can dwell in the presence of God. And then number three, revelation. What does the ark contain? but the very word of God handed to Moses in the Ten Commandments. So we see here that the ark shows rulership, reconciliation, and revelation. 
And as Gerald has been consistent to help us to see that we need to be looking for typology in the Old Testament. Do you remember that term, typology? That is looking to different things, different people, different events in the Old Testament that act as a type that points forward to Jesus. And certainly we should not move forward, even in just talking about how David points forward to Jesus, without seeing how the ark itself points forward to Jesus. It foreshadows Jesus in all three of those ways. That Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To him we see ultimate rulership. In the ark's reconciliation, Jesus is our reconciliation through his own blood, reconciling us through all that he has accomplished, reconciling us with the Father. And then finally, Revelation, Jesus, who is the eternal word of God, who is the ultimate and final prophet revealing to us the word of God. The ark points forward to Jesus, even before we see how David does in this passage as well. So it's clear here that David did not just want Jerusalem to be the political center of the nation of Israel. He also wanted it to be the religious center. He understood the importance of restoring the ark to the center of uh, the people so that God's presence could dwell in their midst as God has intended through this covenant that he has entered into with the people. And we see through the rest of this chapter, three important truths about who God is, even as he moves to do this. First, this morning we see that God is holy. God is holy in verses 3 through 11. Look first at verses 3 through 5 and read along with me. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When I read this passage, one of the things that strike me is the fact that all I see here are good intentions. Do you get that idea? If you're familiar with the stories that are in this chapter, with how this chapter unfolds, it's clear to me that I think there are just good intentions. I don't see any ill intentions by any of the actors here. I don't see any ill intention on the part of David or even Uzzah and Ahio or anyone else who is involved here. However, brothers and sisters, listen, details matter. Details matter. And we see some things here that ought to jump out at us particularly with how they were seeking to transport the ark back to Jerusalem. It says there in verse 3 that the ark was placed on a new cart and that Uzzah and Ahio were driving the new cart. What should stand out to us? Well, we should be reminded that God has been clear to his people about how the ark is to be transported But the ark, first of all, should always have the poles within the rings on both sides, and those are to never be removed. And it is those poles that the Levites alone are to use to carry the ark when it is transported. But the ark, any time that it is transported, also should be covered. And so God has been clear about these instructions. When you look back at the Old Testament, God is also clear about what happens if these instructions are disobeyed. In the Old Testament, it says when Aaron and his sons have have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, including the ark, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. God has been clear about how the ark is to be treated and about how it is to be transported. And brothers and sisters, that those clear instructions are a picture of God's kindness and his mercy. God has been kind and he has been gracious to give clear instructions on how the ark is to be transported. But what do we see happening here? Even as David goes and his intentions are good with wanting to see the ark return to the people, they do not follow the commandments of God. And in fact, the way that they transport the ark or seek to transport the ark here points back to 1 Samuel 6 when the Philistines returned the ark. Do you remember that story? When the Philistines sought to return the ark, 
their magicians and diviners had given um, given the ones who were making these decisions some wisdom to go by. What well, it ended up being not very good wisdom, not very good advice. But they said, we think you ought to return it on a new on a new cart. Right. We have seen what this ark is capable of. Let's honor it by putting it on a new cart. The truth is, we see David and we see Uzzah and we see Ahio who are going to return the ark to Israel. They are more influenced by the cultures around them than they are by the word of God. And that's a costly mistake, as we will see. We also see a picture here of sincere and emotional worship. Notice what it says there. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals as if they, they assembled the entire orchestra. Everybody had an instrument, it seems. Everybody's playing music. Everybody's singing. Everybody's dancing. Everybody is excited. That word there, celebrate, carries the idea of joyful exuberance. And indeed, that's what we see as David goes to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Two points I want us to see here this morning. Number one, God's word, his decrees are not divine suggestions. God has not left his word up for our reinterpretation, nor has he left any room for our suggested tweaks or improvement. I can only imagine how proud the one who made this new cart to carry the ark into Jerusalem must have been. How proud he was that his ark or his cart would carry the ark back into the midst of his people. David and these 30,000 men that he takes with them, Uzzah, Ahio, they are all excited about the, uh, the, the, uh, the opportunity for the ark to return to Jerusalem. But it seems like they have directed the how it would be returned. God's word and his decrees are not divine suggestions. Number two, I want us to see this, that sincerity and emotion are not sufficient measures for determining right worship. I want to pause here for just a second and back out of the story to talk about this, I think, very important application for us today as God's people. Sincerity and emotion are not sufficient measures for determining right or true worship. Anybody from the outside looking in would have seen the sincerity of their worship and just been amazed by it. I'm sure to many it was a beautiful thing to see. Probably stirred the emotions of just people watching it. They were sincere in their worship. They were emotional in their worship. But here is the truth. Right worship will always be grounded in right theology. Amen? Please amen that. Right worship will always be grounded in right theology. And we need a caution here in our culture where we live as God's people because we live in a culture and even in a church culture that has begun to speak of the assembling of God's people as a worship experience rather than the assembled people of God to worship God. Our emphasis has become on the experience of it. To the degree that I have even heard some talk about the fact that in their church or their worship services or their worship experiences that doctrine is diminished and experience is elevated. And if we are not careful, brothers and sisters, we will get sucked into this kind of thinking when it comes to worship. Here's the truth. The measure for worship must not be found in the feeling, emotion, or even the sincerity of the participants, but rather in the accuracy of the reflection of the object being worshipped. This is the appropriate measure for worship. You know, here's the truth. It's hard to not feel like a theological jerk sometimes. I'm just being honest with you. And I know I've seen the eye rolls before when I've started to talk about a new song that has come out and I'm critiquing it or a new book or a new movement or something that's been stirred up in the culture that seems to be captivating everybody's heart. But when you look at it, there are elements of it that that are in error. So much of our worship in our culture has become me centered, even as we pretend to exalt the name of God. So much of our worship, even piling up, 
Those attributes of God, as we sing them, it's his attributes only so far as those attributes serve and bless us. Right theology drives the focus of worship onto God. Right worship is grounded in right theology. Here's the truth. I've been in rooms filled with students. I've been doing student ministry for 20 years. I've been in a lot of rooms with students worshiping. And there have been times where I've been surrounded by students who are emotional in worship. Hands raised, students on knees, emotion, tears, where I have been stirred by that emotion around me because the worship was proclaiming something about God that was right and true. But all too many cases I've been in rooms filled with sincere emotional worshipers where my heart has not been stirred to worship, but my stomach has become sick because of the truth of the lyrics that we're singing not being an accurate reflection of the God we're singing to. And brothers and sisters, listen, from a student pastor's heart, that's not beautiful to me. That's tragic. But the emotions that are being experienced are building a faulty foundation when it comes to who God is. We must be careful that we don't make worship all about emotion. But we measure worship by the accuracy of the theology that it reflects. Even in our own worship. Worship, even if sincere and emotion inducing, but is not centered on the truth, is dangerous. And that's exactly what we see happen next in this unfolding story. Look at verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. When nothing ruins a party, like something like this happening, right? I mean, everything comes to a screeching halt. The music stops. The dancing stops. And all of a sudden, all eyes are on to Uzzah dead on the ground by the ark. Let me ask you a question. How does this make you feel? That's not an appropriate question to ask when we're interpreting God's word usually. But I am interested in how this makes us feel. Because if you're like me, I read this and I want to say, really? The intentions are good. They're wanting to bring your presence back into their midst, God. Right? Uzzah sees that the cart stumbles. The ark is going to fall onto the ground and Uzzah sticks out his hand to keep it from falling. And you strike him dead? Really? Really? But here's the truth. The fact that this story unsettles us only points to the fact that we struggle with the justice of such a situation because it exposes the reality that we try, we lack a true understanding of the holiness of God. It only exposes within me that this doesn't sit right with me, that I take God's holiness far too lightly. That's what it exposes about my own heart. But the truth is, it shouldn't surprise us. Again, God has been clear. They must not touch the holy things lest they die. Also, God has demonstrated that his speaking is his doing. We've just seen this. First Samuel 6, 19 through 20, as the ark is returned and there's a big celebration again in the midst of a big celebration. What does the Lord do? He strikes down 70 of the men in Beth Shemesh. Why? Because they looked on the ark. God has been clear in his speaking. He's been clear in his doing. So this should not surprise us. Brothers and sisters, it's been hard this week to study this passage and prepare to preach without hearing R.C. Sproul in my ear. And if you have read the holiness of God, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not read the holiness of God, do it. Nothing has helped me understand the holiness of God like R.C. Sproul's book and teaching. I still don't understand it as deeply as I should, but I understand it more 
because of that. Read that. Here's an excerpt that he writes there that helps us understand what's going on here with Uzzah. Even as some will try to explain this away or attribute Uzzah's death to natural causes in an effort to shield God from the criticism. Isn't it funny that we try to shield God from criticism? This is what, this is what Sproul writes. He says, no, no, no. God killed Uzzah. God killed Uzzah. Jonathan Edwards, not our friend who was with us this morning, but the preacher. Jonathan Edwards preached on that text and he said this. He said, the great sin of Uzzah was the sin of arrogance and of presumption. You see, Uzzah believed that what would desecrate the sanctity of the Ark of the Covenant would be the mud. But what is mud other than the mixture of dirt and water? And when you mix water with dirt, a law of God's nature follows. It becomes mud. And in doing so, it obeys the Creator because when water is mixed with dirt, it's supposed to become mud. And there is nothing evil about the mud. But he continues... God had not given his law to keep his throne from being stained by contact with the earth. What he wanted to ensure was not that the Ark of the Covenant would be polluted by dirt, but by the touch of a human hand. And Uzzah presumed, says Edwards, that his hands were cleaner than the dirt. And God says in this instance, no. You see, despite the sincerity of their worship, And despite the sincerity of Uzzah's desire to prevent the ark from falling to the ground, God proves faithful to his word. He cannot act against his holiness. He upholds what he has said. He is true and faithful to his word. Sincerity does not and cannot trump disobedience or error, even in ignorance. God's anger in his action here is absolutely right and just. God is holy. He is holy, 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 as we have just sung this morning. He is holy. And notice two things about David's response here, picking back up in verse 8. First, we see that David was angry. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, it says there in verse 8. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez Uzzah means that God has broken out against Uzzah. That should point us back to what David has just proclaimed in chapter 5. When David and his, and his army overthrows the Philistines, he cries out, thanking God that God has broken through his enemy like a flood. So on one hand, David has experienced this holy God breaking through and crushing his enemies. And now David is confronted with the truth that God has broken through and crushed a friend. And yet, we are reminded of God's kindness. That he was clear in his words. And he was clear in his demonstration. But we see that David is angry. I'm not going to be too hard on David. I think I may have been angry too. But notice the second aspect of David's response. David was not only angry, David was afraid of the Lord. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? What a question. How can this ark come to me? Do you see a recognition there, not only of the holiness of God, but also something about himself? Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David was afraid of uh, of the Lord. And the truth is, this is an appropriate response to God's holiness, is it not? Who among us would not have been terrified at the sight I'm sure that not only David, but all of his 30,000 men were terrified at the ark, terrified at God's presence. I was reminded of what God says to, uh, to, to, to his priests through the prophet Malachi, Malachi 1.14, even as he's chastising them and rebuking them and punishing them. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God's holiness will be revealed 
and his name will be feared. Psalm 25, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand is the question. And the inferred answer there is none of us could stand before the holiness of God if he were to number our iniquities because we are so sinful we could not dwell in his holiness. And we see how this this episode in David's life profoundly impacts him. A portion of Psalm 24 that JT read just a few minutes ago, verses 3 and 4. David writes this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. David was confronted and reminded of the holiness of God through this deal with Uzzah. And although fear is the right response to God's holiness... Because of David's error, because of David's sin, his instinct is to shrink away from God's presence and to flee from it. But here's the truth. That's not God's intention for his people. God intends for us in his holiness to fear him. But God's intentions are for us to dwell in his holy presence. Even in that, do we see the juxtaposition that's here? One final thing about this. Do you see the picture of God's mercy here, even in this very difficult circumstance? Can you imagine what would have been the outcome if God had have just looking, looked, looked the other way? Well, I see Uzzah, is, 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 he's got good intentions. He's trying to keep the ark from falling, so I'll, I'll let it go. Can you imagine if God had allowed the ark to be returned in a way that was outside of the word that he has given back into Jerusalem? Do you think that the people in Jerusalem would have, would have gained reverence for God's presence? Do you think that they would have eventually figured it out? I think that it would have been a catastrophe. And even in this instance where it's hard for us to imagine us us being struck down, even for trying to save the ark from falling to the ground, this is a picture of God's mercy. David and the people in Jerusalem were not ready for God's presence to come back in because they were not willing to obey him and follow his word. Here's the application for us in this point. God is holy. And listen, brothers and sisters, his holiness is not subject to our approval or our acceptance. It is not negated or diminished by our sincerity or emotion. Through stories like this, we mercifully see God and his holiness for what he truly is. And we should and must respond accordingly. God is holy. But we also see in this passage that God is good and his presence is good. Verse 12, but look back first at verse 11. Let's read these verses together. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. I doubt this is what David was expecting. Right? How can this ark come to me? Let it go to him. (laughs) And then he finds out that this Obed-Edom and his whole household is blessed because of the ark's presence. First, who is this man, Obed-Edom? It says here that he is a Gittite, which leads some to believe that maybe he was a Philistine from Gath. But I think more, uh, more probably this is a Levite from the Levitical city of Gath, Ramon, and we see that and we see some more details about him over in First Chronicles 26, if you want to look that up later. But we see that the ark of God in his presence causes this flourishing and abundance of blessing to him and his household. Here is the juxtaposition in God's holiness that confronts us. It is the very thing about God that would annihilate us. That's also the very thing about God that we cannot live without. The very thing that would annihilate us is the very thing that we cannot live without. It is the very thing that can fill us with flourishing joy and life. This is the juxtaposition of God's holiness. 
And we are prone maybe to look at it some like, sometimes like we do the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we kind of break up the attributes of God and ask, how can this God be this God? It's the same thing here with these attributes. So uh, maybe in the, the situation with Uzzah, we see the holiness of God, and then with Obed-Edom, we see the goodness of God. But brothers and sisters, God cannot be broken apart. We cannot break His, His attributes apart in this way. Listen to me. His holiness is His goodness. God's holiness is his goodness. Listen, God's holiness is the hot spot of God's terribly intense goodness. His goodness is so intense that if anything that is not good approaches his presence, it is destroyed. So we see even in God's wrath, we see his goodness. And all of this is a picture of his holiness. Let me say that one more time. God's holiness is the hot spot of God's terribly intense goodness. It reminds me of a beautiful portion of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure you've heard this quoted before. But Lewis writes there, Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know he's the king? It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? said Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, uh, braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen to Peter's response. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes. To the point. Do you hear the juxtaposition even in the response? That awareness of God's holiness makes us fearful of His holiness, but it also draws us in. This is the truth of His holiness. And the very thing about God that terrified David to the point of fleeing from His presence is the very thing that also draws Him back to bring His presence near. How can this be? Well, for David, it was the covenant that God had established with his people. It was through the covenant that they could abide in the presence of this God who had made a way through the parameters of the covenant to abide with him. They must obey that which God has revealed for us now on the other side of the cross that it gives us a different answer. This is only reconciled in Christ This juxtaposition is only reconciled in Christ. Because in the New Testament, we see the holiness of God affirmed. Hebrews 10, 31, the writer of Hebrews declares, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a proclamation of the holiness of God. It is terrible. It is to be feared. But also, just before that, this is what the author of Hebrews writes, beginning in verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But if we are in Christ, washed by his blood, redeemed by him, wrapped in his righteousness, then we can enter into his presence with confidence because our life is found in him. This is the nature of substitutionary atonement. His righteousness is our righteousness. And now we can proclaim the goodness of the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We are welcomed into his presence. This is how the juxtaposition is reconciled, only in Christ. So what is our response? It's summed up pretty well in Psalm 2.11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. (laughs) You hear that? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We can only rejoice in God's terrible, holy presence if we are safely wrapped in the safety of Christ's righteousness through faith. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us what a proper response looks like in Hebrews 12, where he speaks of this terrible God once again returning and shaking all things because of sin. In verse 28, it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God, listen, acceptable worship with with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Peter answers this question of what our response should be in first Peter one, beginning in verse 13. He writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How are we to respond? We are to be sober minded, constantly reminded of God's holiness as we abide in his presence. It is when we stop abiding that we forget God's holiness and that is where we enter into dangerous worship as we worship, as we, as we enter into his presence casually without the right awareness of his holiness. But we are also to be holy as he is holy, conducting ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, constantly aware of the holiness of God. I love Psalm 25. Three that asked the question, if you count iniquities, who could stand? The very next verse says this in verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. (laughs) This is the beauty of the gospel. That God is holy. And God is good. And finally, in this chapter, we see that God is worthy. God is worthy. Verses 13 through 23. Let's begin there in verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Do you notice some vitally important corrections here? The ark is no longer on a new cart. The ark is being carried We see if we fast forward to 1 Chronicles 15, gives us a little bit more insight. There it tells us that David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. So David did what was appropriate in this instant. He went and consulted with the Levites and understanding how this was to be conducted. We also see here that he sacrificed an ox and a fat and fattened uh, animal. So David is aware of the holiness of God and he responds accordingly by offering a sacrifice This is a picture of his need for atonement. And finally, we see here that David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that commanded him to do this, but I think that David is making a statement here. I think that David is going a little bit beyond and above to show us an important truth here. You see, here's the truth. David is the king and he is leading. But he's not leading in this day as a king. He's leading more as a priest. He's leading more as a shepherd. I believe that David understands his role and he is embracing his correct role as prince over Israel. One commentator writes this in divesting himself of his royal robes and assuming a garment unequivocally associated with divine service. David is willingly emphasizing who is truly king of Israel and renouncing any attempt to manipulate him. You think David has the the, the previous episode playing in his mind even now as he is welcoming the ark back into Jerusalem? 
David wants to leave no doubt that this day is not about me. This procession is not about me. It's not about me as king. It's about the king of kings. And I am simply a servant accompanying him back into the presence of his people. You see, here's the truth. Fear drives us to humility and obedience out of a cautious reverence for the terrible yet beautiful reality of God in his holiness. And brothers and sisters, that right there is the essence of true worship. That is the essence of true worship. Worship, we've said before, is worth-ship. It is declaring the worth of God in light of who He really is. And true worship always proclaims that He is greater than I. And that's what we see in David's posture here, even in what he is wearing. A little bit later, we will see him continuing to embrace this priestly role. Verse 17, if you'll skip forward a little bit. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. We need to understand here that it says that David is offering these offerings, but we know that if David the king were actually offering the offerings in his hands, that God would have struck him down because we've seen that happen before. This is David acting as the king should act and directing the Levites to do what only the Levites and the priests can do. And so David is busying himself, not withdrawing the attention of the people or being a king, but making sure that this God is honored and he is wanting to share the blessings of this God with his people, even as his presence comes in to Jerusalem. And once again, even in this, we see that David points forward. That David is in some way here embodying these roles of king and priest, but he's embodying the priest's role in a limited capacity because it wasn't for him to actually offer these offerings. But he points forward to the one who is to come, Jesus, who perfectly embodies both the roles of king and priest. In another place in Hebrews, the author there writes that Jesus enters into a temple not made with hands, into the very presence of God the Father, and offers his own blood as a once-for-all sufficient sacrifice for his people, for all who will come through faith in him. Jesus is the one who embodies prophet, priest, and king perfectly, and David points us to him. The text tells us that David danced before the Lord with all of his might, We are used to seeing him fight with all of his might. And here he is dancing with all of his might. And I want to call a time out just a second to point to something here that I think is important because I've heard this text used in this way before. This is not prescriptive. Some things in Scripture are descriptive. They're just a description of something that happens in a certain setting in a certain time. Some things are prescriptive. That we should look to in understanding how we are to do the very same thing. This is not prescriptive. And to suggest that our worship should always be expressive in this way or that it should verge on being undignified would be a dangerous leap into legalism. Not only that, but it would crush and discourage some people like me. Because brothers and sisters, in my personality, I'm just not very expressive And there have been times where this passage and the way that other people have used it crushed me because I thought that somehow I wasn't worshiping God. This is not prescriptive. It's not. However, I do want to balance it with this. If in our worship we are bored, joyless, always devoid of any emotion and unmoved, then we aren't really worshiping at all. We are not truly gazing upon the beauty, the majesty, the holiness, and the grandeur of God. So there's a balance somewhere in there, isn't there? Once again, our worship is not measured by the emotion or the visible display. It's measured by the accuracy of the object being reflected in it. What we see here is there is at least one person in Jerusalem who is not exuberant. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David... Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And listen, she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. This is after 
uh, verses 17 through 19, where we see David uh, really fulfilling this priestly role. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Do you hear the, um, the sarcasm dripping off of that statement to David? She holds him in contempt and she speaks to him sarcastically. Notice how Michael is referred to here. She's not referred to as the wife of David, but, but how? As the daughter of Saul. Three times she is referred to the daughter of Saul. See, it had been through a window that Michael, the wife of David, had aided him in his escape from her father back in 1 Samuel 19. But it is through a window here in 2 Samuel 6 that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks upon David with contempt. And here we are not only to see Michael in her contempt, but she is a reflection of her father Saul. And this is why the text links her to him and not to David. So notice this. David strips off his kingly robes and instead wears a linen ephod, the garment of a divine servant. He dances with all of his might before the ark as it arrives in Jerusalem. He prepares a place for the ark, a tent that would house it until a temple is built. Offers burnt offerings and peace offerings upon it as they're being placed there. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. David demonstrates God's exuberant worth before the people. He demonstrates God's holy righteousness before the people. He demonstrates God's covenant love before the people. And David demonstrates God's gracious goodness before the people, even as he mediates the blessings to them in a very tangible way. And notice the contrast with Michael. She mocks David with sarcasm. She challenges David's actions that, in her opinion, were beneath the king of Israel. She shames David for his indignities before his servants and even his servants' servants. She says he uncovers himself today as she sees David stripping off his status of king. By the way, there is nothing in the text that would indicate that David strips off all of his clothes. I know that that's sometimes an interpretation here. Later in First Chronicles, it tells us that David is wearing this ephod over another robe that he is wearing during this time. So I don't think that the idea here is that David is undignified and stripping off all of his clothes. Michael is angry that David is not acting like the king that she thinks he ought to act like. The spirit of Saul is what we should see here. Okay? And so listen as David responds to Michael. He says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. He continues to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. So what is the proper response according to David right there in the text? He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. Notice that his statement both begins and ends with the phrase before the Lord, which reveals David's focus. He will celebrate before the Lord. It's before the Lord That he acts the way he is. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, David says. But by the female servant of whom whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. You see, these servants were not the audience for David. God was. God alone was his audience. This was not a performance for the people, but worship for and to God. And not on behalf of a king, but a servant. This is how David saw himself. The purpose of this day was not to bring attention to himself as the king, but to direct all focus onto the one true king. And notice this final word of judgment that we hear from Michael. Verse 23, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. In this, again, we see the terrible judgment of God's holiness. Now, we don't know what this means. We don't know that this is judgment shown in barrenness for Michael or if it's judgment shown through a break in the relationship between David and Michael. But one thing is clear. It is an act of God that does it. It's a judgment on his part. 
What we do know here is that it brings a complete end to Saul's reign and dynasty. And there would be no son of David who is also a grandson of Saul, thus uniting the two dynasties together. Here is the truth. God sets himself against the proud. But a little later, we will see the truth that God also exalts the humble when David welcomes a crippled Mephibosheth to the king's table. That's coming. That's a preview. Both Saul and David are sinful and deeply flawed men. And yet there is a running contrast between them that elevates David's example while denouncing Saul's. Saul embodied the role of king to the degree that he forsook his devotion to anything higher than his own status. Time and again, he refused to step out of his kingly robes and humble himself before the Lord. David, on the other hand, in light of the supreme worth of God and the precious and gracious gift of his presence, willingly humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Hello, does that remind you of someone else? In order to exalt the Lord's glory before his people, Saul viewed the presence of God as useful, a tool to be manipulated for selfish gain. David is coming to understand that God's presence is both terrible and critically necessary, but also absolutely essential for life and flourishing. And these are the reminders. God is holy. God is good. And God is worthy. Some applications for us this morning, four of them. Number one, how we view God matters. I will say this again, and it will not be the last time. Every single person drawing breath is a theologian. It's not a question of, are you a theologian? The question is, how accurate is your theology? We are to be good theologians. Why? Because God has graciously given us his word wherein he has revealed himself to us. What we think about God, how we view God matters. Theology matters. Number two, how we worship matters. Our worship is a reflection of who God is. It centers upon his presence. And if we are worshiping out of a false idea of who God is, our worship is not good, true worship. Jesus said, my worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. How we worship matters. Number three, how I view myself matters. Do we see ourselves in light of the reality of who God is? I wanted to go a bit further than the text goes in the first, the first attempt of David to return the ark to Jerusalem. And I wonder if David was walking in with some pomp and circumstance, proud of this new ark, this new cart that the ark was going to ride into, proud of these 30,000 men that he had assembled. God exalts the humble. He opposes the proud. How I view myself matters. And even in that, we see a juxtaposition that we just sang about last week or the week before. Our worth and our unworthiness. Do we understand who we are in light of who God is? By the way, if we get theology wrong, we will get anthropology wrong. Our right understanding of ourself will only come out of a right understanding of God. Number four, finally, how do we seek to relate to God matters. How we seek to relate to God matters. On this note, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we transition into a time of response? And I want to unpack this fourth point just a moment. For the one outside of Christ, my plea would be for you to look to him in faith. If you are outside of Christ, the only kind of fear that is available there in response to the holiness of God is terror. The Bible says that anyone who is outside of Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins and is a child of God's wrath. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot right ourselves enough to bring ourselves into God's presence and have right standing before him. This is why we need Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who earned righteousness for us. 
where we failed to do so and then walked sufficiently obediently to the cross, fully making atonement for our sin, becoming our sin on the cross, becoming the curse of the law to free us from the curse of the law. Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose again to proclaim that he is who he says he is and everything that he has accomplished completely satisfies the legal demands of God the Father on behalf of anyone who would approach him by faith. This is the only reconciliation that is available. If you are outside of Christ this morning, may this glimpse of God's holiness drive you to Jesus in faith so that you can be restored to his presence. Secondly, for the one who is in Christ, look to him in faith. It's through the process of repentance that we are continually dealing with the sin that is in our hearts. The sin that causes us to fall so desperately short of God's glory. But it's also in repentance that not only allows us to confess that sin, but to look anew to Jesus, who is the one who has accomplished everything for us, to be reminded that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, and we have right standing before the Father because of His righteousness. This, brothers and sisters, is how we continue to be sober-minded according to God's holiness and how we continually preach the gospel to ourselves. So God, I pray this morning that you would remind us of these great truths of who you are. That you are holy, and you are good, and you are worthy. And God, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts to convict, God, to lead, to help us to know how we can respond in a way that would honor you. So God, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Even, even now, as we respond by singing, as we respond through prayer, as we respond through ministering to one another, God, may you be magnified even in that. God, help us to be sober-minded to the reality of who you are, and I pray that every element of our lives will be a right response to that. So do that work in us through your Spirit, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.